0: For those of you who are visiting with us, just to let you know that we have been set this in context. We've been working through a series which we have um, simply entitled Being Human. Looking at different aspects of what it means to be human and how that relates or sometimes doesn't relate terribly well to what it means to be a Christian. Um, So our title and theme for this morning is Being Human, Being Spiritual. And I want to really ask two questions this morning. And the first one is simply this. Um, Are we being spiritual or are we simply being deluded? Um, I don't know whether you picked it up during the news in the last week, but Richard Dawkins is back with another publication on the terrible effects of deluded belief in God. You may have seen some of the programs which he's produced, which have been on Channel 4, one of them called The Root of All Evil. And in the programs and in this recent publication, Dawkins attacks God in all his forms from the sex-obsessed, cruel tyrant of the Old Testament to the more benign but still illogical celestial watchmaker favoured by some Enlightenment thinkers. And Dawkins sees it as his mission in life, quite unapologetically now, particularly in this most recent book, to show how religion fuels war, foments bigotry and abuses children. Joan Bakewell, a name that might be well known to you, reviewing the book in the Guardian paper, says, Dawkins is right, not... Dawkins is right to be right. Sorry, Dawkins is right to be not only angry but alarmed about religion. Religions have the secular world running scared. This book, she says, is a clarion call to car no longer primed by anger, redeemed by humour. It will, I trust, offend many. You come here to church and you assume that we are spiritual beings. You make that assumption. Dawkins would argue that this is nonsense and we are deluded. In one interview he gave a very succinct explanation of this theme which he developed in the Root of All Evil programs in Channel 4. The question was asked to him, so why do we insist on believing in God? And his answer was, from a biological point of view there are lots of different theories about why we have this extraordinary predisposition to believe in supernatural things. One suggestion is that the mind, the child mind, is, for very good Darwinian reasons, susceptible to infection, the same way a computer is. In order to be useful, a computer has to be programmable, to obey whatever it's told to do. That automatically makes it vulnerable to computer viruses, which are programs that say, spread me, copy me, pass me on. Once a viral program gets started, there is nothing to stop it. Similarly, the child brain is pre-programmed by natural selection to obey and believe what parents and others, other adults tell it. In general, it's a good thing that child brains should be susceptible to being taught what to do and what to believe by adults. But this necessarily carries the downside that bad ideas, useless ideas, waste of time ideas, like rain dances and other religious customs, will also be passed down to generations. The child brain is very susceptible to this kind of infection, and it also spreads sideways by cross-infection when a charismatic preacher goes around infecting new minds that were previously uninfected. Essentially, Dawkins believes that religion is a brain virus. It infected you probably when you were a child, and it it clearly still infects you, which is why you're here this morning. That's why Dawkins thinks it's immoral, for example, that parents should continue to be allowed to infect their children with this destructive virus called religion. The only way to deal with the religion virus is to apply a good dose of rational thinking and flush it out of the system. Dawkins would consider the premise of our series on being human nonsense laughable. Forget the the made-in-the-image-of-God stuff. Dawkins and others, many others like him, would say we were made uh, for very different reasons. One quote would go as follows. What are all of us but self-reproducing robots? We have been put together by our genes. and What we do is roam the world looking for a way to sustain ourselves and ultimately produce another robot, a child. Considerable work is being done uh, in brain research and neurological understanding. Uh, in connection with religious experience, which, is many of which much of which is very interesting. Part of it is research to just try and understand how the brain works and functions in the context of emotion, emotion, uh, religious and emotional experience. And part of it is clearly to, a bit like the space trip into uh, space, to prove that there isn't any God, there's just chemicals. Biologically, heavenly states, one scientist says, are dependent on the limbic system or emotional part of the brain and hormonal secretions. Mystical states are not fantasies, delusions or intangible events. They are the end result of complex chemical and neurological processes. They begin with instinctive awe and indefinable thrills, floating sensations and perhaps spiritual hunger. A BBC report recently into research done in Canada included the following The lead researcher said the main goal of the study was to identify the neural correlates of mystical experience. I take it that means what's going on in your brain in regard to mystical experiences. Rather than there being one spot that relates to mystical experiences, he said, we found a number of brain regions are involved. This does not diminish the meaning and value of such experiences, he says interestingly, and neither does it confirm or disconfirm the existence of God. In the same interview, Father Stephen Wang, a Catholic priest, Uh, Teaching in London said these brain studies can give us fascinating insights into how the human body and mind and spirit interact. But they should not make us think that prayer and religious experience are just an activity in the brain. True Christian mysticism is an encounter with the living God. We meet him in the depths of our being. It is an experience that goes far beyond the normal boundaries of human psychology and consciousness. There's a lot of stuff out there. I'd be very surprised if you haven't already come across some of it. Um, it it influences hugely um, the way in which we think in our world and the way in which religion is being viewed, particularly in the Western society. I think as we look at some of this stuff and ask ourselves, um, are we simply deluded? We quickly recognize that our arguments with people like Dawkins are not actually arguments about science. There are arguments about truthfulness regarding the logic of his position and the inherent contradiction of some of his conclusions. There are arguments about his appalling understanding and use of scripture, or rather his very deliberate caricature of Christian understanding of scripture. There are arguments about (laughs) dishonesty regarding atheism, some kind of virtuous state which would essentially abolish all kinds of evil. There are arguments about the illiberal intolerance such as the argument that an antidote to fundamentalist Christianity and all the rest of it is to ban parents teaching their children. And this morning what I want to do as we recognize that honestly for many people there is a struggle about considering what it means to be human and to be spiritual, is to simply restate where we started in this particular series because we had five points of reference in regard to being human. We looked at the early chapters of Genesis, and from the early chapters of Genesis and other passages of Scripture, we reminded ourselves that we were made from the dirt. And yes, of course, there is a very profound correlation between the way in which our chemical, the chemicals in our bodies are made up and the world around us. The Bible doesn't try to hide that. It states it explicitly. We are made in the image of God. We believe very much in a God who creates, a God who takes the initiative, and that we are made in his image, which has various levels of meaning. We know that we were made for relationship with God and to manage uh, the world which he had created. We know that we made a mess in terms of our relationships with each other and our relationships with God, but we know that it is possible also to be made new because of the work of Christ. And that's the premise that we come from. And I have to confess that while Dawkins is a very persuasive um, arguer of his case, and having watched just in the last week online a couple of those Channel 4 presentations again, there are just so many issues with which, so many areas with which we would have to take issue with him that you can't spend the whole of your life, nor would I encourage you to spend the whole of your life, living in fear of the presentations made by Richard Dawkins. Engage with them, understand them, but don't be afraid of them. So this morning I want to look. Assuming we are not deluded, convinced that we are not deluded, what it means to be human and to be spiritual. What in Christian terms does being spiritual mean is my second question. For some, debate about uh, spirituality or being spiritual is really a debate about the relationship between the body, the mind and the soul. How does that work out? What Bible passages do you use that explain the relationship between these things? For some... Being spiritual as a Christian means denying being human in the bodily sense or doing away with that as much as possible, putting it down, subjecting it, treating it as something that's really not terribly worthy. For some, being spiritual is about subjective experiences, the kind of things that the Canadian professors are researching in the brain. For some, it's about receiving or communicating subjective messages from God and to others. For some, it's displays of piety. That's the definition of what it means to be spiritual in a Christian. For some, it's the exercise of dramatic abilities, apparently supernatural experiences or behavior. But it seems to me that being spiritual in a Christian biblical sense is much more basic and much more profound. Some Christians may strive after supernatural experiences. Neuroscientists may investigate the emotions and mystical experiences associated with religion. But the Bible will take us in a slightly different direction when we are investigating what it means to be human and to be spiritual. Yes, of course the Bible uses terms like soul and spirit. In the Old Testament, soul being a reference primarily to simply being a living being. Yes, you'll find terms like soul and spirit in the New Testament, but sometimes used interchangeably, sometimes purely metaphorically. The Bible uses these terms, but it uses them to serve its purpose, not to give us precise definitions of what it means to be both human and spiritual. In fact, the overall thrust of the Bible is reinforcing the basic concept that to be human is to be spiritual. They are two sides of the one coin. They're not different things. And I'm going to suggest a way of thinking about Christian biblical spirituality or what it means to be spiritual. Biblical spirituality is the matrix or the weaving together of attitude, belief, and behavior informed by our faith, which is informed by Scripture. Being spiritual as a Christian is about being shaped and developed over time in our lives. It's not just about religious practice. It's not simply about turning up in church. It's not simply about saying your prayers. It's not simply about experiences which you may have had or long to have. Being spiritual in biblical Christian terms is about the outworking of our faith and conviction in the context of of the world around us and in relation to the world around us. Being spiritual in a biblical sense is being shaped and informed by scripture in terms of attitude, belief and behaviour. On the one hand I could hold a handful of threads of various colours and on the other hand I could hold your jacket or your shirt if you were to lend it to me. One is made up very much the same as the other, but a handful of threads that are just hanging loosely in my hand don't have any relationship to each other and don't serve any particular purpose. But when they are woven together, when they are brought together, I may be able to produce your shirt with its intricate patterns and designs, or your jacket, or whatever else it may be that you are wearing. Christian biblical spirituality, when the Bible talks about being spiritual, it's talking about how our attitudes, our beliefs and our behavior are shaped by our faith, which is itself informed by scripture and how all these things are woven together into one garment. It's not about how you choose to live as a human being in some areas of your life and the religious bits as being something different. Being human and being truly spiritual in the biblical sense is about being a rounded human being in which all of these things weave together. Many of us have confused notions about what it means to be spiritual. But what we're left with very often is a handful of threads lying loosely in our hands. Yes, we read the Bible, we pray, we seek spiritual experiences, we avoid sinful things, we try to be good, we try to be honest. We maintain relationships at work, family and friendship, but we don't necessarily see how these things interrelate and connect. The Bible's view of spirituality is of something woven together, a single piece of cloth that is recognisable. I want to illustrate this using some Bible passages which speak about Jesus, and I want to focus on him as a model for thinking about this this morning. And I want to make three very simple statements about Jesus and his spirituality. Jesus was not religious, he had a clear focus, and we see in him the perfect marriage of belief and lifestyle, or belief and action. You might like to turn to some of these passages, some of them are just uh, brief passages we're going to look at, others um, have a slightly longer reading to them. I want to begin with Matthew chapter 9, and verse 14, uh, one of the passages that we mentioned a couple of Sundays ago when we were dealing with the theme of fasting. And one of the features about this particular passage, um, which is mirrored in Luke chapter 5, is Jesus' attitude to the whole business of fasting. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. In another passage in Luke 5, it says they came to him, and this is the Pharisees on this occasion, and said, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Why is this? And You may remember from our session on fasting a few weeks ago that Jesus doesn't apologize or make excuses for being publicly or appearing to be publicly or religious. He makes no apology for failing to indulge in public religious exercises which others consider to be thoroughly right and biblical. We know he fasted. We know from Matthew chapter 4, for example, example and verse 2 that he fasted in the wilderness at the time of his temptation. But he was not averse to completely ignoring religious conventions. And he was not averse to encouraging his disciples to do likewise. He makes no apology for them. He doesn't simply explain that they're a bunch of ignorant fishermen largely, or thieves and bandits that he sort of brought together and they're a hard job trying to educate. He simply says it's not relevant. Quite a startling thing to do in the context of being quizzed both by John's disciples and by the religious leaders of his day. Turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 12, which in the copies of the Bible that's in the pew you'll find on page 977. Listen to what it says in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain to eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't say, I'm terribly sorry. I'll keep a closer eye on them. He doesn't say, uh, Well, maybe you have a point. He does take them back to an Old Testament principle. And he basically shows them that they are far more concerned about religion than they are about the true worship of God. He makes no apology. He does not pretend that this is a mistake. And recognizes that it is giving grave offense to those around him. He defends the behavior of his disciples. Religious observance, whether it was fasting, whether it was Sabbath observance, seemed to be of relatively little interest to Jesus. Luke chapter 11, verse 38, is another one of those passages where we get an, in, an indication of, of how Jesus was perceived and how he behaved. Luke chapter 11, verse 37, on page 1043. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also, but give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you? Quite amazing. Or it should be quite amazing to us that the Gospels record incidents like this without any embarrassment or apology. This is precisely the kind of thing that got the early Christians a bad name within the Jewish community. It's the kind of thing that the Judaizers tried to counteract in the life of the church. Such a public disregard for the law of God in the exercise of religion. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 41 you read about how Jesus touched a leper. He broke the law in a sense. He touched that which was unclean. Now we know that he had the transforming power to cleanse, but he could have simply spoken. But he was prepared to break the religious rules because he didn't see being religious as being the issue. Mark chapter 2 verse 16 tells us, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He touched them, he ate with them. Why? Because Jesus was not primarily concerned about being religious. That was not his definition of being spiritual. He had a clear focus instead on the essentials of what it means to be spiritual. Mark chapter 12 is probably one of the the best passages to see how this has actually worked out. Mark chapter 12 and in verse 28 it tells us, on page 1018 of the copies of the Bible in the pew, that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you were right in saying that God is one, there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then no one dared ask him any more questions. Why? Why did they not dare to ask him any more questions? Simply because he knew the scriptures and was able to answer a question like which is the greatest commandment. Every Jewish child, for miles around, would have been able to answer that question satisfactorily. But because they too knew their scriptures and knew that the practice of religious observance means nothing to God. For far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices and church attendance and turning up at communion and all the rest that we can do. Is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, and your neighbour as yourself, and not put in any distinguishing between the two things. The teacher of the law knows he's beaten. The teacher quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, because actually the teacher knows what counts. And even though he and his friends have been trying to do Jesus down on the basis of poor religious practice, they know they can't touch him when it comes to being spiritual. He has a very clear focus, God's focus, not our performance-related kind of focus in what it means to be spiritual. What marks Jesus out is the clarity of this focus in being a truly spiritual person. He has amazing spiritual experiences. You think of the like of the transfiguration, but it's not that Jesus goes seeking them. It's not that he spends three years teaching his disciples how to go seeking transcendental, mystical, religious experiences. He doesn't. He spends three years teaching them what it means to radically focus on loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. He was a truly spiritual person in whom belief and action were inseparable. I think of that touch of the leper. The thing that motivated that touch of the leper, Mark is very clear in Mark chapter 1 verse 41, is compassion. Not duty. Not the desire simply to shock, but compassion. And in Jesus, this very clear focus is brought together in belief and action in a truly spiritual person. who is not particularly interested in being religious. In Matthew chapter 14, we see Jesus providing for others. Verse 13, it talks about how uh, when Jesus heard what had happened, this is in regard to John, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place, obviously wanting and needing time to himself. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when he landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away, you give them something to eat. Which was not possible on the part of the disciples, but Jesus does it. We see the marriage of belief and action in the compassion and the provision for others. We see it supremely in Matthew 26, particularly those words between verse 26 and 29 with which we are so familiar. While they were still eating... Jesus took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In the sacrifice the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, you see the perfect marriage of belief and action. You do not see religion. You see a truly spiritual human being. You see this marriage of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength and your neighbour as yourself. We see it in compassion. We see it in provision. We see it in sacrifice. You and I are human that we share in common. You and I are spiritual. But what does that mean? Of what does that consist? As far as the Bible is concerned, it's not about finding a God hole in the location of your soul, your spirit or your brain. As far as the Bible is concerned, it has to do with functioning as the kind of person God intended you to be, having been made in his image. It's not about walking around with a handful of threads representing the different aspects of your life, but just trying to make sure they're all the right color. It has to do with the weaving together of those threads in a wholesome, healthy way, in the expression of your own humanness and in your relationship with God and with others. I went to hear the Dalai Lama some months ago at a private meeting when he was in Belfast. Many people would consider him to be one of the most spiritual people in the world, and the thing that struck me, and the friend who was with me, was just how human he was it was quite clear that those around him wanted to create in the way in which they spoke a kind of spiritual aura around the man it was quite clear that he did his best constantly to try and undermine them it was clear that he wanted to be seen essentially as a straightforward sensible human being without hocus pocus or other magic what struck me and challenged me was his refusal to play the game of being spiritual in some ethereal mystical way To please other people. I don't share the Dalai Lama's beliefs. But I do reckon he has a better handle on what it means to be spiritual than many Christians. We are not remotely like Jesus when we try to be spiritual off our own strength. We are not remotely like Jesus when we think that being spiritual is the same thing as being religious. We need to make the whole business of being spiritual more than it is. And consequently sometimes we miss the real significance of what it actually means. It simply means to be whole. To understand what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's the challenge. The challenge for me and the challenge for you is, is my life basically a handful of threads? They're all the right colour because they all fit with things the Bible says, but that's essentially all it is. It's a handful of threads. Or is my life a matrix, a weave? Of attitudes, belief, and behaviour shaped by my faith in Christ and informed by Scripture. The challenge for us is to think about the connectedness between being human and being spiritual in an integrated way, as opposed to thinking about being human and having to be religious. My primary concern this morning in thinking about this subject is not whether you and I are deluded about the existence of God, my concern is whether we are deluded about what it means to be human and spiritual. And my encouragement to you this morning is not to worry about being religious. Get focused on the main task. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And weave these things together in your everyday life. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. And be human and be spiritual. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that our lives are made up of more than merely mundane experiences and events. We are grateful for the sense of wonder and awe that is inspired in us by so many things. Whether it's by nature and creation, whether it's by the love and companionship of others, whether it's by things that we see which artists create, whether it's by things that we are unable to do, We thank you for that sense of wonder and awe, but we pray that you would deliver us from seeking to replicate senses of wonder and awe as a means of being spiritual. We thank you that you speak to us, sometimes very powerfully, as we have heard from Nathaniel and Donald this morning, sometimes very dramatically for people who have no prior knowledge of the gospel, and we are grateful for this. But Father, forgive us where we become distracted, or where we seek escapism. In seeking to manufacture for ourselves something that is passingly religious. We seek your blessing and your grace to be faithful to the great commandment. To seek to know what that means in working it out in our lives. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. I've rather overshot my time. I apologise for that. And to the folks who were prepared to sing a few more songs for us and, and won't be doing that. Um, there are children to be collected from Creche and from Junior Church and you will be doing a great favour for those who are looking after them if you'd like to do that. If there's anything that you have heard this morning that you'd like to pick up on, anything that I have said, anything you've heard from Nathaniel and Donna or from Isabel, um, please feel free to do that. It's been good to have you with us this morning. But could I ask if we could all just stand together And bring our time to a close by saying together the grace. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.